Hi, welcome to Stardust MQ. I'm Cameron Furlong. My guest today is Dr. Devika Kamar. She's quite an accomplished research scientist specializing in optical spectroscopy, but she's also quite accomplished outside the research sphere as an ambassador for STEM both in Australia and abroad. I had the opportunity to sit down with Devika to talk about her research and also some of the work she does in the community. You've spent quite some time studying the chemical compositions of stars in their lifetimes uh, through optical spectroscopy, and you actually found your own class of star, which is absolutely incredible. Um, can you walk me through how that came about? During my PhD, I started working on um, understanding the origin of elements in the universe. It was a project I always wanted to do, but in order to do that, we needed to find tracers because um, you can imagine if you're trying to understand how stars create the elements, stars don't make all sets of elements throughout their entire life. There's a particular phase of the star's life in which they're most susceptible to make these elements. And then there's another phase that follows the first chemically rich phase where you can actually detect these elements. So we knew that the post giant phase is the phase we want to study these objects in. But when I started my research, there was maybe around 20 known objects. So what I decided to do was I decided to create these large surveys to actually identify these so-called stellar fossils in the Magellanic clouds to start off with, because you know the Magellanic clouds are great test beds. We know distances to the clouds and a distance is a very important parameter in astronomy, because if you know the distance, it means you know the actual brightness of the star or the real luminosity. And if you know the luminosity, you know the mass. Mass and the initial composition of the star determines everything about what kind of elements the star makes. For example, a very massive star would make a lot more oxygen in elements like uranium and gold. A star like our sun will never make uranium and gold because it doesn't explode as a supernova. So in this process of actually you know, trying to discover or identify or hunt down these stellar fossils, we found this weird bunch of stars that we didn't quite understand initially because of their slightly more intriguing stellar parameters and you know, the kind of index that these stars have. Eventually, when we investigated them, we quickly came to realize that these stars are in binary systems, but not the typical binaries that go all the way uh, to the end of the star's life and then the binary interaction, so to speak, kills the system. Uh, but these stars actually, they, they terminate their lives much early on, so they don't even enter the second giant branch phase that typical stars do. So it was a bit of serendipity, but in the end, it was knowing what binary stars would do for being a particular mass and metallicity and understanding that, wait a minute, these stars don't do that. So they must be following a different evolutionary channel, so to speak. And, you know, we decided to call them post red giant branch stars. And that was how the discovery came to be. What does a discovery like this actually imply? So the implications were basically that binarity can have very fatal effects on a star's life. Typically, you know, you would expect these stars to go ahead and make elements like carbon or have binary interactions. 
but these stars don't even get to go to the stage of nucleosynthesis where they actually make the carbon. And essentially, yes, binarity can affect the star's life, the way it evolves, uh, and terminate stellar evolution. And therefore, what happens is instead of having a stellar graveyard with white dwarfs that are having their cores made up of carbon and oxygen, what you land up is that a massive population of these stars terminate their lives as white dwarfs, but with a helium core. And I think a very interesting observation we made was if you take a group of stars and you create a population synthesis model, which is a fancy term for saying you evolve a bunch of stars uh, through a model to understand how they will you know, evolve and eventually die, um, majority of the stars actually land up terminating their lives because of the binary interaction much early on, which was the class of stars we discovered. So you were chosen as one of the 2020 superstars of STEM. Can you tell me a little bit about that? The Superstars of STEM program, it's an initiative by Science and Technology Australia. And the idea behind the Superstars of STEM program was that SDA was looking to identify um, women science celebrities across Australia, and they came from every field of science. So I think the idea was to really identify women who can represent their fields uh, and also use that as some sort of avenue to bring in younger students, especially girls and also girls from diverse backgrounds. Because, you know, stereotyping is a very big thing in, in, in STEM, in science. There's always these stereotypes or mindsets that make you believe certain group of people for example, women don't easily do science, or if you're from a diverse background, it's very hard to see people from diverse backgrounds doing science. So the idea was to smash these gender stereotypes, to smash cultural stereotypes, and, and have faces of women representing their fields so that the younger people look and learn by example. So this, the STEM program has been really interesting because in two ways. Uh, personally, it's really helped me build my profile. You know, it's really given me the platform that I think in my stage of career, I might have needed to sort of uh, launch myself as a um, astronomer or an astrophysicist uh, within the astronomy community, but also internationally, because this gets picked up by international um, universities and international media. For example, my alma mater back in India picked this up and, you know, I started um, even more close collaborations, trying to get many more girls in India to get into science and so on. It's also helped me to really provide mentorship for aspiring young girls. I remember being a child, being extremely passionate about astronomy, but being clueless. I didn't know how to get into astronomy. I didn't know what university degree I had to take. I mean, in the end, I managed all right, but you know, there was a lot of doors that I had to smash. And I think the idea for me was always, if I can make an easy entrance or an easy pathway for other women or other girls who want to come into the field and have apprehensions, then that's great. You were chosen as the 2020 Youth Ambassador for the India Australia Business and Community Award for Science Research and Development. What does that role actually entail? I had applied for this award called Australia India Science Research and Development Award. So it's an award that recognizes talent in research, academia, for any field of science, arts. So it's quite an open competition. 
and I happened to be one of the finalists and I also happened to be the youngest finalist who got selected for 2019. But in 2020, the Indo-Australia Business Community Awards invited me to be the youth ambassador for the awards. And our role was to identify candidates with Indian-Australian origin who have been able to contribute to the Indian-Australian scene, strengthening collaborations between India and Australia. And I think such initiatives are important because collaboration is everything in today's world. The world is almost shrinking, so to speak. And as you know, now even more in the COVID era, you need to have a strong collaboration, both nationally and internationally. And for me, it's about having that connection to my roots, which is still very important, uh, as much as it is for me to be known as a global astronomer. I, I really like and appreciate the fact that I have very strong connections to my roots. You're on the Anglo-Australian Telescope's Time Allocation Committee. What responsibilities does that role give you? So the ATAC is essentially the, the panel that is allocating time on the AAT. And this is for the national community as well as there's paid time. So we look through proposals and we identify, we rank them in order of merit and credentials. Personally, I think I expressed interest in the role and then got selected onto the committee, but I expressed interest onto the role because I think it's important early in your career to be able to contribute back to the community in some sort of service role. It makes you feel, I think it's, it's gratifying in a way because you're giving back to the community what you also get out of it. But I think more importantly, you learn a lot from being on such panels, as you can imagine, you know, because you come across proposals that are in various fields. You learn how to get a scientific judgment, which is very important. And then you learn how to deal with biases. You learn how to deal with the state of the art kind of science, what people do. So I think it's a great experience and I recommend, you know, anyone listening or interested to definitely not be shy to uh, not refrain from such roles. Now you wear a lot of hats uh, outside of research as an astrophysicist. What's been your most challenging role so far in your career? I think balancing life and work together, that's been my most challenging role. Just balancing all that you do, you know, making sure you still have a good research output at the same time you're able to contribute to your students um, because it's really competitive what academia has become. So if I have four students or three or two or whoever they may be, I need to ensure that I'm giving them the spring pad to be future leaders in a science area that they can then take forward and they're competitive enough for fellowships or postdoc positions or whatever they may be, you know, aiming to aspire. And then being on committees can actually be, in, in my opinion, this is personally to me, it can be quite nerve wracking because you've got this big role of ensuring that you're making the right decision, which can affect somebody's proposal, which means somebody's scientific career. So it's a huge responsibility. And sometimes I have sleepless nights over it to make sure I'm judging them right. Or So I, I think the biggest challenge is balancing all of this together. And then there's life, you know, your own personal life and your own mental health and making sure you don't take work too seriously, which I'm not very good at, I must admit, but I'm trying. <laughs> so I would say life and work balance is my most challenging role so far.
Stardust MQ is a podcast made with the support of the Macquarie University Department of Physics and Astronomy and the Macquarie University Physics and Astronomy Society. Our intro music is by Poddington Bear and our outro theme is from Ketzer. I'll talk to you next time.